Chapter 50, Part 3 of The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume 5. This is the LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume 5, Chapter 50, Part 3. Arabia was free. The adjacent kingdoms were shaken by the storms of conquest and tyranny, and the persecuted sects fled to the happy land where they might profess what they thought, and practice what they professed. The religion of the Sabians and the Magians, of the Jews and Christians, were disseminated from the Persian Gulf to the Red Sea. In a remote period of antiquity, Sabianism was diffused over Asia by the science of the Chaldeans and the arms of the Assyrians. From the observations of two thousand years, the priests and astronomers of Babylon deduced the eternal laws of nature and providence. They adored the seven gods or angels who directed the course of the seven planets, and shed their irresistible influence on the earth. The attributes of the seven planets, with the twelve signs of the zodiac and the twenty-four constellations of the northern and southern hemisphere, were represented by images and talismans. The seven days of the week were dedicated to the respective deities. The Sabians prayed thrice each day, and the Temple of the Moon at Haran was the term of their pilgrimage. But the flexible genius of their faith was always ready either to teach or to learn. In the tradition of the creation, the deluge, and the patriarchs, they held a singular agreement with their Jewish captives. They appealed to the secret books of Adam, Seth, and Enoch, and a slight diffusion of the gospel has transformed the last remnant of the polytheists into the Christians of St. John in the territory of Basra. The altars of Babylon were overturned by the Magians, but the injuries of the Sabians were revenged by the sword of Alexander. Persia groaned above five hundred years under a foreign yoke, and the purest disciples of Zoroaster escaped from the contagion of idolatry and breathed with their adversaries the freedom of the desert. Seven hundred years before the death of Mohammed, the Jews were settled in Arabia, and a far greater multitude was expelled from the Holy Land in the wars of Titus and Hadrian. The industrious exiles aspired to liberty and power. They erected synagogues in the cities and castles in the wilderness, and their Gentile converts were confounded with the children of Israel, whom they resembled in the outward mark of circumcision. The Christian missionaries were still more active and successful. The Catholics asserted their universal reign. The sects whom they oppressed successively retired beyond the limits of the Roman Empire. The Martianites, the Manichaeans, dispersed their fantastic opinions and apocryphal gospels. The churches of Yemen and the princes of Hira and Ghassan were instructed in a purer creed by the Jacobite and Nestorian bishops. The liberty of choice was presented to the tribes. Each Arab was free to elect or to compose his private religion, and the rude superstition of his house was mingled with the sublime theology of saints and philosophers. A fundamental article of faith was inculcated by the consent of the learned strangers, the existence of one supreme God, who is exalted above the powers of heaven and earth, but who has often revealed himself to mankind by the ministries of his angels and prophets, and whose grace or justice has interrupted by seasonable miracles, the order of nature. The most rational of the Arabs acknowledged his power, though they neglected his worship, and it was habit rather than conviction which still attached them to the relics of idolatry. 
The Jews and Christians were the people of the book. The Bible was already translated into Arabic language, and the volume of the Old Testament was accepted by the concord of these implacable enemies. In the story of the Hebrew patriarchs, the Arabs were pleased to discover the fathers of their nation. They applauded the birth and promises of Ismael, revered the faith and virtue of Abraham, traced his pedigree and their own to the creation of the first man, and imbibed with equal credulity the prodigies of the holy text and the dreams and traditions of the Jewish rabbis. The base and plebeian origin of Muhammad is an unskillful calumny of the Christians, who exalt, instead of degrading, the merit of their adversary. His descent from Ismail was a national privilege or fable, but if the first steps of the pedigree are dark and doubtful, he could produce many generations of pure and genuine nobility. He sprung from the tribe of Koresh, and the family of Hashem, the most illustrious of the Arabs, the princes of Mecca, and the hereditary guardians of the Kaaba. The grandfather of Muhammad was Abdul Matalib, the son of Hashem, a wealthy and generous citizen who relieved the distresses of famine with the supplies of commerce. Mecca, which had been fed by the liberality of the father, was saved by the courage of the son. The kingdom of Yemen was subject to the Christian princes of Abyssinia. Their vassal, Abraha, was provoked by an insult to avenge the honor of the cross, and the holy city was invested by a train of elephants and an army of Africans. A treaty was proposed, and, in the first audience, the grandfather of Mohammed demanded the restitution of his cattle. And why, said Abraha, do you not rather implore my clemency in favor of your temple, which I have threatened to destroy? Because, replied the intrepid chief, the cattle is my own, the Kaaba belongs to the gods, and they will defend their house from injury and sacrilege. The want of provisions, or the valor of the Koresh, compelled the Abyssinians to a disgraceful retreat. Their discomfiture has been adorned with a miraculous flight of birds, who showered down stones on the heads of the infidels, and the deliverance was long commemorated by the era of the elephant. The glory of Abdul Matalib was crowned with domestic happiness. His life was prolonged to the age of one hundred and ten years, and he became the father of six daughters and thirteen sons. His best beloved, Abdallah, was the most beautiful and modest of the Arabian youth, and in the first night, when he consummated his marriage with Amina, of the noble race of the Zarites, two hundred virgins are said to have expired of jealousy and despair. Muhammad, the only son of Abdallah and Amina, was born at Mecca, four years after the death of Justinian, and two months after the defeat of the Abyssinians, whose victory would have introduced into the Kaaba the religion of the Christians. In his early infancy he was deprived of his father, his mother, and his grandfather. His uncles were strong and numerous, and in the division of the inheritance, the orphan's share was reduced to five camels and an Ethiopian maidservant. At home and abroad, in peace and war, Abu Talib, the most respectable of his uncles, was the guide and guardian of his youth. In his twenty-fifth year he entered into the service of Khadijah, a rich and noble widow of Mecca who soon rewarded his fidelity with the gift of her hand and fortune. The marriage contract, in the simple style of antiquity, recites the mutual love of Muhammad and Khadijah, describes him as the most accomplished of the tribe of Koresh, and stipulates a dowry of twelve ounces of gold and twenty camels, which was supplied by the liberality of his uncle. By this alliance the son of Abdallah was restored to the station of his ancestors, 
and the judicious matron was content with his domestic virtues, till, in the fortieth year of his age, he assumed the title of a prophet, and proclaimed the religion of the Koran. According to the tradition of his companions, Muhammad was distinguished by the beauty of his person, an outward gift which is seldom despised except by those to whom it has been refused. Before he spoke, the orator engaged on his side the affections of a public or private audience. They applauded his commanding presence, his majestic aspect, his piercing eye, his gracious smile, his flowing beard, his countenance that painted every sensation of the soul, and his gestures that enforced each expression of the tongue. In the familiar offices of life, he scrupulously adhered to the grave and ceremonious politeness of his country. His respectful attention to the rich and powerful was dignified by his condescension and affability to the poorest citizens of Mecca. The frankness of his manner concealed the artifice of his views, and the habits of courtesy were imputed to personal friendship or universal benevolence. His memory was capacious and retentive, his wit easy and social, his imagination sublime, his judgment clear, rapid, and decisive. He possessed the courage both of thought and action, and although his designs might gradually expand with his success, the first idea which he entertained of his divine mission bears the stamp of an original and superior genius. The son of Abdallah was educated in the bosom of the noblest race, in the use of the purest dialect of Arabia, and the fluency of his speech was corrected and enhanced by the practice of discreet and seasonable silence. With these powers of eloquence, Muhammad was an illiterate barbarian. His youth had never been instructed in the arts of reading and writing. The common ignorance exempted him from shame or reproach, but he was reduced to a narrow circle of existence, and deprived of those faithful mirrors which reflect to our mind the minds of sages and heroes. Yet the book of nature and of man was open to his view, and some fancy has been indulged in the political and philosophical observations which are ascribed to the Arabian traveler. He compares the nations and the religions of the earth, discovers the weaknesses of the Persian and Roman monarchies, beholds with pity and indignation the degeneracy of the times, and resolves to unite under one God and one King the invincible spirit and primitive virtues of the Arabs. Our more accurate inquiry will suggest that, instead of visiting the courts, the camps, the temples of the East, the two journeys of Mohammed into Syria were confined to the fairs of Basra and Damascus, that he was only thirteen years of age when he accompanied the caravan of his uncle, and that his duty compelled him to return as soon as he had disposed of the merchandise of Khadijah. In these hasty and superficial excursions, the eye of genius might discern some objects invisible to his grosser companions. Some seeds of knowledge might be cast upon a fruitful soil, but his ignorance of the Syriac language must have checked his curiosity, and I cannot perceive in the life or writings of Muhammad that his prospect was far extended beyond the limits of the Arabian world. From every region of that solitary world, the pilgrims of Mecca were annually assembled by the calls of devotion and commerce. In the free concourse of multitudes, a simple citizen, in his native tongue, might study the political state and characters of the tribes, the theory and the practice of the Jews and Christians. Some useful strangers might be tempted or forced to implore the rights of hospitality, and the enemies of Muhammad have named the Jew, the Persian, and the Syrian monk, 
whom they accused of lending their secret aid to the composition of the Koran. Conversation enriches the understanding, but solitude is the school of genius, and the uniformity of a work denotes the hand of a single artist. From his earliest youth, Muhammad was addicted to religious contemplation. Each year, during the month of Ramadan, he withdrew from the world and from the arms of Khadija. In the cave of Hera, three miles from Mecca, he consulted the spirit of fraud or enthusiasm, whose abode is not in the heavens, but in the mind of the prophet. The faith which, under the name of Islam, he preached to his family and nation, is compounded of an eternal truth and a necessary fiction, that there is only one God, and that Muhammad is the apostle of God. It is the boast of the Jewish apologists that, while the learned nations of antiquity were deluded by the fables of polytheism, their simple ancestors of Palestine preserved the knowledge and worship of the true God. The moral attributes of Jehovah may not easily be reconciled with the standard of human virtue. His metaphysical qualities are darkly expressed, but each page of the Pentateuch and the Prophets is an evidence of his power. The unity of his name is inscribed on the first table of the law, and his sanctuary was never defiled by any visible image of the invisible essence. After the ruin of the temple, the faith of the Hebrew exiles was purified, fixed, and enlightened by the spiritual devotion of the synagogue, and the authority of Muhammad will not justify his perpetual reproach that the Jews of Mecca or Medina adored Ezra as the son of God. But the children of Israel had ceased to be a people, and the religions of the world were guilty, at least in the eyes of the prophet, of giving sons or daughters or companions to the supreme God. In the rude idolatry of the Arabs, the crime is manifest and audacious. The Sabians are poorly excused by the preeminence of the first planet or intelligence in their celestial hierarchy, and the Magian system, the conflict of the two principles, betrays the imperfection of the conqueror. The Christians of the seventh century had insensibly relapsed into the semblance of paganism. Their private and public vows were addressed to the relics and images that disgraced the temples of the East. The throne of the Almighty was darkened by a cloud of martyrs and saints and angels, the objects of popular veneration, and the Calidrian heretics, who flourished in the fruitful soil of Arabia, invested the Virgin Mary with the name and honors of a goddess. The mysteries of the Trinity and Incarnation appear to contradict the principle of the divine unity. In their obvious sense, they introduced three equal deities, and transform the man Jesus into the substance of the Son of God. An orthodox commentary will satisfy only a believing mind. Intemperate curiosity and zeal had torn the veil of the sanctuary, and each of the Oriental sects was eager to confess that all, except themselves, deserved the reproach of idolatry and polytheism. The creed of Muhammad is free from suspicion or ambiguity, and the Koran is a glorious testimony to the unity of God. The prophet of Mecca rejected the worship of idols and men, of stars and planets, on the rational principle that whatever rises must set, that whatever is born must die, and that whatever is corruptible must decay and perish. In the author of the universe, his rational enthusiasm confessed and adored an infinite and eternal being, without form or place, without issue or similitude, present to our most secret thoughts, existing by the necessity of his own nature, and deriving from himself all moral and intellectual perfection. 
These sublime truths, thus announced in the language of the prophet, are firmly held by his disciples, and defined with metaphysical precision by the interpreters of the Quran. A philosophic theist might subscribe the popular theory of the Muhammads, a creed too sublime perhaps for our present faculties. What object remains for the fancy, or even the understanding, when we have abstracted from the unknown substance all ideas of time and space, of motion and matter, of sensation and reflection? The first principle of reason and revelation was confirmed by the voice of Muhammad. His proselytes from India to Morocco are distinguished by the name of Unitarians, and the danger of idolatry has been prevented by the introduction of images. The doctrine of internal decrees and absolute predestination is strictly embraced by the Mohammedans. They struggle with the common difficulties, how to reconcile the prescience of God with the freedom and responsibility of man, how to explain the permission of evil under the reign of infinite power and infinite goodness. The God of nature has written his existence on all his works, and his law in the heart of man. To restore the knowledge of the one and the practice of the other has been the real or pretended aim of the prophets of every age. The liberality of Muhammad allowed to his predecessors the same credit which he claimed for himself, and the chain of inspiration was prolonged after the fall of Adam to the promulgation of the Koran. During that period, some rays of prophetic light had been imparted to 124,000 of the elect, discriminated by their respective measure of virtue and grace. Three hundred and thirteen apostles were sent with a special commission to recall their country from idolatry and vice. One hundred and four volumes had been dictated by the Holy Spirit, and six legislators of transcendent brightness have announced to mankind six successive revelations of various rites, but of one immutable religion. The authority and station of Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, Christ, and Mohammed rise in just graduation above each other, but whosoever hates or rejects any of one of the prophets is numbered with the infidels. The writings of the patriarchs were extant only in the apocryphal copies of the Greeks and Syrians. The conduct of Adam had not entitled him to the gratitude or respect of his children. The seven precepts of Noah were observed by an inferior and imperfect class of the proselytes of the synagogue. The memory of Abraham was obscurely revered by the Sabians in his native land of Chaldea. Of the myriads of prophets, Moses and Christ alone lived and reigned, and the remnant of the inspired writings was comprised in the books of the Old and New Testament. The miraculous story of Moses is consecrated and embellished in the Koran, and the captive Jews enjoy the secret revenge of imposing their own belief on the nations whose recent creeds they deride. For the author of Christianity, the Muhammads are taught by the prophet to entertain a high and mysterious reverence. Verily, Jesus Christ, the Son of Mary, is the Apostle of God, and his word which he conveyed unto Mary, and a spirit proceeding from him, honorable in this world and in the world to come, and one of those who approach near to the presence of God. The wonders of the genuine and apocryphal Gospels are profusely heaped on his head, and the Latin Church has not disdained to borrow from the Koran the Immaculate Conception of his Virgin Mother. Yet Jesus was a mere mortal, and at the Day of Judgment his testimony will serve to condemn both the Jews who reject him as a prophet, 
and the Christians who adore him as the Son of God. The malice of his enemies aspersed his reputation and conspired against his life, but their intention only was guilty. A phantom or criminal was substituted on the cross, and the innocent saint was translated to the seventh heaven. During six hundred years the gospel was the way of truth and salvation, but the Christians insensibly forgot both the laws and example of their founder, and Mohammed was instructed by the Gnostics to accuse the church, as well as the synagogue, of corrupting the integrity of the sacred text. The piety of Moses and of Christ rejoiced in the assurance of a future prophet, more illustrious than themselves. The evangelic promise of the paraclete, or Holy Ghost, was prefigured in the name and accomplished in the person of Mohammed, the greatest and last of the apostles of God. End of chapter 50, part 3